0: Michael Kotakis is the author of Dispatches, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and Excavating Voices, Listening to Photographs of Native Americans. His new book is Traveler, Observations from an American in Exile. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you very much, Rick, for having me. Michael, this is a very interesting book in the form. These are raw letters and journal entries. Are they unrevised?
1: Yes, yes they are unrevised. Boy, <laughs> it's you're a scary good writer. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind. Well... The reason that I write and try to write and find descriptive prose in my journal is a very simple reason, so that when I reread them, I'm not bored with myself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Success, uh, mission accomplished.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: Um, a, a phrase that should bring fear into all our hearts from now on. <laughs> um, these entries cover a, a huge number of years. I mean, uh, from... Uh, Eighty two, eighty-four to now? Seventy four. Seventy four. Oh, that's right. That's from, right. Uh, from yeah. about nineteen
1: seventy four, yeah.
0: Yeah, so so we're talking you've got thirty years plus uh, of diaries and journals and, and letters to go through. That's right. How did you begin to attempt this project and why? Well,
1: as I was reading through some of the journals from my uh, from my travels, I realized because I've never stopped traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, that there were some things there that were rather prescient that had been seen in the past. And I began to question, why were they seen in the past? Why was I seeing them? Why could I see what might happen in the future? And I found it was nothing unique at all. It was just observing and being engaged when I traveled, and also reading a great deal of history. And I thought that the book uh, or the journal entries were also, after not seeing them for a while, Uh, They brought back memories, very strong memories, but they also seemed to me at the time to be well-written, better written than I had thought before. And I thought by picking every now and then some of the pieces that uh, were memories that were very strong for me, it might be an interesting book for someone else.
0: Well, one of the things I think you do very well here is what I would call a prose snapshot. There are many different forms and entries in here, but you're a photographer too. Yes. A- and this, are the, I take it that photographs in here are yours? Yes. Boy, they're amazingly gorgeous. Thank you. Let me ask you about the photographs real quick. Were, when you uh, took them and printed them, did you mean for them to be printed in black and white or would you, is there a color plate version? They're all
1: black and white. I've never oh. photographed in anything other than black and white. Wow. And, uh, What kind of camera do you use? I I was sponsored for many years by Leica. Okay. And I uh, always used pictures to help uh, illustrate my writing a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But then the photographs became more and more uh, well-received by places like the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the National Portrait Gallery. And so unbeknownst, it was not a direction I was going in. The photographs were being well received by these major institutions, but they were always there to elucidate the writing Mm -hmm. and to go a little further with the writing.
0: Let's talk about, there are a number of entries in here that are just like one paragraph long, I mean, just a few sentences, and they really have the feeling of a photograph. Mm -hmm. When you were sitting down to write these, did you compose them in black and white in your mind as a photograph? No,
1: and many of these were written in real time. So if while something was happening in front of me or (laughs) shortly thereafter, Uh uh, the letter to Michael Palin in the the book Mm -hmm. was written in real time. I was actually sitting in the hotel with that person Mm -hmm. on the phone arguing while I was writing the letter to him. And by that argument taking place while I was trying to concentrate on the letter, it just filtered in Mm -hmm. to the letter itself, that it became a metaphor of why uh, these two lovers arguing on the phone, Mm -hmm. and uh, that feeling about my country, that we were lovers that knew each other too well and couldn't tolerate each other anymore in some ways. It's
0: very interesting um, that the way, you um, sequence these through time. It, there's no there's no sequence. I mean, they're kind of out of sequence. There's no chronological sequence, although there seems to be a very deep core thread that you're following through, and it's a kind of an intricate pattern. And it's almost as if um, you're unstuck in time. These letters are unstuck in time, and I really couldn't help but think of Kurt Vonnegut's Billy Pilgrim.
1: Oh my goodness, well. That's high praise. You've made me very frightened. <laughs> I, I think your point about them being snapshots, uh, written snapshots, is very, very, uh, very perceptive. I haven't thought of it that way, but as you've said it now, they are very much that way. Eudora Welty once said, when she took these extraordinary photographs of the Black South many, many years ago, I remember Charles Corral had asked her, Oh, Miss Welty, how how did you compose this? How did you do this? And she was so sweet. And she said, Why, Mr. Corral, life was composing itself around me all the time. I had to learn to be quick enough and quiet enough to just catch it. That, made, that was an extraordinary statement by a writer about taking pictures, because all around you life is composing itself. If one just looks or asks the question of the people, whether it's the back streets of Istanbul and Cairo, ask questions, people are very happy to tell you exactly what they think while all of this is going around you. And I've always been at my best when I've been in those situations, always at my very best or I should say, at my most
0: happiest. You're walking around, and, and let's just talk about one place, Sierra Leone, 1988. Uh, one of the things you do here is create a number of characters in a variety of fashions. I was thinking of this book as the character, the way you create characters in this book is, I mean, there's many different ways you do it. And one is, is obviously, we're we're talking about SAR here. Is that yeah, yes, yes. Nice? Um, Tell us about uh, being in Sierra Leone in 1980. What what brought you there? And and were you when you're doing this? You talk about taking the notes in real time. I mean, you're standing there with a a, a notebook. What kind of notebook? do you
1: Sometimes use? I'm using a uh, an old uh, journal from Scotland. These flexible journals that you get uh, from a company in Scotland called. Uh, uh, I forget the name of the journal, but below it it says "with the all-weather cover." You know, moleskin. Oh no, 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 no! It's a flexible journal that oh. can fall apart. It's it's really well done. Uh, it costs about six dollars per <laughs> journal. Uh, but uh, uh, actually, you know, I must correct myself. Those journals were given to me about eight years ago by Michael Palin. He said you should use these. At that time, I was using something like the old moleskin, but mm-hmm. they were more flexible. But no, I don't stand there with the journal or with the camera if it's, if it's not me participating in what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm usually sitting there very focused on the person, listening to them. And if something happens, I will write something quickly down. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work that way, that evening I will sit down, as I do every evening, and write what took place. But I... What I've been very good is remembering dialogue when people have said things to me, the sequence they have said things to me, and also my perception of Sar, for instance, um, who I believe was killed in the Civil War, though I have no proof of it, was this extraordinary uh, young man with, uh, with a bright and sparkling mind.
0: When you're doing this in a as a journal, your your recount, you come home at night and recount to uh, the story of Sahar. Um that's one, you know, aspect of the writing, but there are two very, very different aspects of writing. This particular book is the one is composing the things in the moment as snapshots that you take kind of um of the past, I guess, the past day. But also, now, here you are, you know, some twenty one years later. Picking and choosing the snapshots you put in your your book. Talk about that aspect of the writing. For me, it was actually quite simple.
1: These had to be things that were meaningful but separated from time to time by something that I enjoyed, the lightheartedness of life, too. But primarily, I would say, without being a prig, that I'm a rather serious-minded fellow. And I think life is a rather serious a rather serious encounter, a serious reality. And I've been with people who were so extraordinary under such difficult circumstances and so gracious and so bright uh, that I felt those were important pieces to keep in there and also extraordinary criticisms that happened early on with the way my country has behaved, which is not only unseemly but inhumane and i felt that uh, i could not just sit there and not put those in and and not voice what i had seen in different parts of the world that we were responsible for
0: let's talk about that aspect of the book it's called an american in exile mm-hmm. i mean i think i know a lot of people who were ready to to book it yes <laughs> Um, but not many of us could or could afford to tell us about your decision to do what I think a lot of people really wanted to do when it happened and what that that moment Well I simply left the country and I'm not a wealthy
1: man I was tired of fighting I used the only power that I had left to me which was my defiance of saying no I'm not going to be a part of this no I will not participate no I won't sit idly by anymore Uh, but But more than that, I have felt for some time that this hasn't been a country, that really it's been a store where everything is for sale, every principle, every ethic, every friend. And I was not going to allow any piece of geography anywhere in the world to define me simply by economics, that I was more than that. And I don't believe in nationalism, and I don't believe in these kinds of things. What I believe in is people having the right to live their lives full measure with a certain amount of hope and integrity and uh... this was particularly hard because i do love my country i'm a son of an immigrant here but enough was enough
0: guy who comes up a lot, and, and this is a, a man who I've thought found, found interesting for many years, is T.E. Lawrence. And, yes. and he's kind of a guiding light for you. Tell us a little bit about how he cuts through this work. Well, you, you I'm sure, read
1: the, his letter in the book mm-hmm. uh, to the Times. I believe it was 1922. Lawrence was, the way that I was introduced to Lawrence, as my mother lay dying, in the little Chicago apartment where we live for for a few years. I was a frightened little boy. And uh, my father, a Greek immigrant, introduced me to his photographs of ancient Greek ruins, introduced me to the Chicago Public Library. That's why I'm such a fan of libraries. A librarian detected in me a very frightened child who was retreating from the world. So what she proceeded to do with my father was weave a magic carpet. And part of the weave was Mark Twain. Part of the weave was uh, Kim. Part of the weave was T.E. Lawrence. And T.E. Lawrence for me was something that I thought was extremely admirable. A man of letters and a man of action. And one who was prepared politely to his king to not accept awards when he thought it was inappropriate with what his country was doing and that he should be informed. So there were many things about T. Lawrence that, first of all, he was right most of the time, historically. Mm-hmm. And I, call me crazy, I just believe that we should be paying attention to the people who have been consistently right with their views <laughs> rather than <laughs> people who have been consistently wrong and very well rewarded for it.
0: Um, y- you talk about a phrase, and I think this is an important phrase uh, from the T.E. Lawrence letter, qui bono. Tell, me, tell us what that is and, and why it's mm-hmm. important.
1: Yes. You know, that, that phrase uh, was elucidated for me by a, uh, a naval officer uh, who really wanted to point out to me that things, the reason he had pointed out qui bono uh, was that things do not really change. The struggles are the same struggles, whether it was in Lawrence's time, whether it was in the Crusaders' time, or whether it is in this time. It is an ongoing battle. And, and um, I, I think that that is true, but there is a tendency in saying things will continue, things are the same, to use that as an irrational to no longer stand for anything whatsoever. And so Lawrence, for me, is someone who consistently, constantly, was someone who, I have to be accurate about this, mischievously as well, pointed out, do not be too emotional about these things, don't go overboard, but pointed out again and again and again for the simple reason That it's the truth, not because of dogma or ideology.
0: Um, For all the places you might have been, you were also in New York in September 2001. Yes. Uh, What brought you there? And and could you talk about writing that piece? Yes. Uh, I was in Montana uh,
1: when uh, the Twin Towers were struck. And I immediately knew, or thought I knew, that a profound change might take place in the United States. So I jumped in my car and began to drive across the United States, talking to all different kinds of people, and photographing them. Uh, I must say, it was a rather disappointing trip going across the country, part of it because people were shell-shocked, to be sure, not quite sure which way to turn. But what I found, I I did find America once, and it was in New York at that time. The first thing that happened when I got there, approximately, I think, 10 days after the attack, was absolute silence, no horns honking. And the first person who started taking me around in a taxi cab was a gentleman from Afghanistan. When he saw press credentials I had, he began to tell me and take me all over the city and show me things and then wouldn't accept a dollar for taking me all night. There was a level of humanity and concern, but the most poignant part that I never forget of that uh, trip, everywhere I went, the Bronx, uptown, downtown, wherever I went, Grand Central Station, you name it, there were all these pictures of people lost, 17th floor, 30th floor, have you seen, everywhere you went, pictures. And everywhere I went, there was this beautiful Indian woman, what I took to be an Indian woman, her face, Dr. So-and-so, missing, Da, da, da have you seen her? It was only on the fourth day I realized that it was September 10th that she had gone missing. And the family had been running all over New York City, knowing that any effort to find her now had stopped because of everything that had happened. And they were trying to include her everywhere so that people wouldn't forget that the day before their daughter had been taken. Wow. <laughs> really um, extraordinary things. And I must say one other thing that I saw there that I found deeply moving. And that was an old man dressed very nicely, waiting for a train. And while he waited for a train holding his cane, he just broke down. He just broke down, started sobbing uncontrollably. And next to him had been this tall, lovely woman. I had only seen them from behind. Her hair pulled back, obviously a businesswoman with her briefcase. Um, And without saying a word, she just moved to the old man's side and put her arm around him. They never said a word. But there he was, crying into this this lovely woman. It was really quite... But life was composing itself everywhere there.
0: And I'm struck by even how just sitting here, you have an ability to create a photographic image, in my mind, uh, with your words. When you write, do you go back and, and hone your craft? I mean, we're obviously seeing, I think, the tip of the iceberg here. And so could you talk about um Discovering, you know maybe some of the warts in your work, and, and, and in contrast, the more the gorgeous stuff you, you put in here. Oh,
1: thank you, Rick. You're being very kind, and I greatly appreciate it. I must tell you, this was the most difficult part of this book. What should I go back and through the prism of time, now with more experience in writing? What should I do? Should I go back and clean up some of the more rough pieces that were written earlier on? And from the beginning, I realized the book wouldn't ring true if I did that. So there's an entry in 1974, when I'm 22 years old, called I Don't Like Texas. And there's a clumsiness about that piece.
0: (laughs) I love that piece. It's really good. But you see how it's a little (laughs) clumsy.
1: And I thought to myself, well, that was a different young man then. That was a different fellow. And I kind of like him. He's a little naive. He's a little uh, passionate. He's he's He doesn't quite know how to put words together. He's using words that no Midwestern boy from Chicago has any idea. <laughs> Vulgarity. <laughs> a kid from Chicago doesn't know that from the South Side. But I used it. So I was trying even then for some uh, some literary tricks, if you were. Uh, And that was a letter to my father, who I dearly loved. And I knew that my father always loved words, and he would always look them up because he always looked like this. He had a heavy accent. He always loved words, never got it straight. You know, so I know if I put vulgarity in there, he would immediately run to the dictionary and try to find out what that was. But I didn't want to tamper too much with what happened so that I could transport people back to that time, not just of what was happening there, but who I was at that time. Even though it's terribly important, this book is not about me. It's about, like the photographer behind the scene, writing about what's in front of them and other people and their experiences. So so I polished a little bit, but more on the ones that were more recent. And tried to leave the others alone. I've always tried initially to write strong descriptive prose. Always, I've really have really tried very hard at that, and have failed for more years than I've succeeded at it. It's taken a long time to get to this point. It really has.
0: I, I loved your description of of Syria alone, Leon, especially when you talk about the, the witches and dreams, and, uh, because I comb. Uh, Have I'm part of a news group and we get these kind of news service. There are people who will send, uh, who will post uh, newspaper articles, and a lot of them from Sierra Leone and in Africa. I find it really fascinating that they live in a very different world from us. I mean, it's just rife with witches, and I mean, more not so long ago. I mean, there was a big to do because somebody who was, was accused of stealing a car had transformed into a hyena, like just before they were caught. And I just thought this is a really different world than the world. Well, there are living. more
1: things in heaven than are dreamt of in your <laughs> philosophy, and that was so true there. I, uh, you know, when you're dealing with people who truly believe, and I'm not sure after seeing some of the things that I saw in extended stays in Sierra Leone uh, that I still can't explain. I am very careful about. When people bring up witchcraft or when people bring up certain things with what I saw there. Mm -hmm. I think that people live in their own universes. And those things, whether we perceive them or not, become true to them. And that in itself is very, very powerful business. Voodoo can only hurt you if you believe in it. But a lot of people believe in it. And then it can really hurt you. Like Catholicism or Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> or nationalism. <somehow>. Or nationalism. <laughs> well, yes. just... All those isms, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: A little bit about your travels in, in your recent travels when you were like trying to get away from America. I mean, those of us left behind were, were who weren't like I guess uh, buying the story. Yeah. Um. We're kind of like grief-stricken and, and a little bit of course and scared too. Of course. So um. Could, and you were writing back to people in America, and your book creates those characters. Tell us about the people you were writing to here.
1: I was writing to friends who I knew were feeling from their letters to me just what you said. They were frightened. They were exhausted. They had lost a certain semblance of hope. They'd lost their equilibrium. And whether the the sad fact was, no matter where I traveled, so did I. Uh, And I... Couldn't, because I had always hoped for the best for the country, and I knew that we were in a real pickle, but the people who saved me were the people that I met along the way. You know, there's a funny thing about traveling, even in places where they don't like Americans, if you start complaining much harder than they do about your own country, they're shocked. And almost to the person wherever I've gone, whether it's Morocco, other parts of the Middle East, if you're so violent in your, in your objections to the United States, they start to get worried for you and they start pointing out actually what's good about the United States, <laughs> even if they don't like you. And then they say things almost to the point of, you think you've got troubles, let me tell you about my country and from. And all of a sudden the nationalism disappears and you're two people sharing the space about life and your difficulties. You have nothing to protect at that point. And so what I tried to convey to my friends back here, yes, the world was upset with us, but let me tell you about some of these people I'm meeting who are very funny, who still can laugh together with us, still wish us the best. And one was a little, uh, uh, a little Italian man in Rapallo when he sat uh, with me, who I, I adored, and he said "The Michael, why? Uh, Forty-five million of people, no health insurance in your country. I said, "Oh, Giuseppe, it's very difficult." He said, "No, no, Michael, he's a mafia." I said, "Giuseppe, it's a lot of things, but it's not the mafia." He said, "No, no, he's a mafia, Michael. He's the only..." Re-. I said, "No, Giuseppe, please, it's not the mafia." He said, "Oh, no, no, Michael, Michael, scuse, scuse. In your country, you call them insurance companies, <laughs> and we could sit there, and he said, yeah, the mafia. They go to shoot you. They say it's nothing personal. We should the you need you die on the.'" The couch and the insurance company says, uh, nothing personal, but we're not going to pay the bill. Uh, and he said, that's a mafia. And I said, Giuseppe, you may have some. <laughs> so it was wonderful hearing other people's perceptions of the United States, and we could laugh. And they, being gracious most of the time, always said, now let me tell you about my country. You know, And they would go to the next step. So it was through those people, through moving through Morocco at the time, sitting with people— that um, I realized uh, there were people in the world who just simply wished us the best, whether we were Americans or not. They were just wishing us the best. They liked our culture. They liked the music. They liked the idea that an America existed somewhere in the world, even if it was just a frame of mind. They didn't want that to disappear.
0: Uh, In one of the journal entries from Paris... You talk about Madeline Levy, yes, and and you use a great phrase in here. I love this phrase: "running into history." Yeah, tell us a little bit about Madeline Levy and and your running into history with her. Yeah,
1: Madeline Levy uh, was the granddaughter of Alfred Dreyfus, and uh, everything that Alfred Dreyfus went. Paris is my home, France is my home. I I love France, but I don't engage in idolatry. I see things, you know, I'm I'm an equal opportunity complainer, whether I'm (laughs) in the United States or France. And they had a sense, uh, a policy of institutional anti-Semitism. There's no way around it. The French, after a few glasses of wine, even admit that. And I found... uh, Alfred Dreyfus's grave at Montparnasse Cemetery. I went there to visit it one day. And I saw this name, Madeleine Levy, and I didn't know what it was. And I went to the Musée, Musée de la Shoah in Paris, the, the Jewish museum, and there was a wonderful woman there who went out on the list of the dead and showed me Madeleine Levy. And she was a young girl who was deported to Drancy and then on to Auschwitz. And she died of typhus there and I thought to myself that was just so astounding after what Dreyfus had gone through that the granddaughter of Dreyfus is then deported from Paris and killed or dies while en route to a concentration camp there was incredible irony there and what I meant about running into history now you have a president uh, of France that is part Jewish, has some Jewish family background. And I thought that was just astounding. Because I don't believe we get past history. I believe it's like a carpet that rolls out, and we keep running into it. Case in point is
0: Israel and the Palestinians. A lot of history we keep running into. Or or uh, as the United States repeats the same mistakes that the Soviet Union made, uh, yeah. that we benefited from and helped help. In, in bed and fitting from help create the same people who would make us lead us to repeat those mistakes yes,
1: which might be a definition of insanity <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you,
0: know. um, you one thing I noticed was that you like for you know your misgivings about the United States and, and they are, are certainly well versed uh, there are parts of it you like Carmel I mean and it's a beautiful place you find a lot of you find peace here The reason I find peace is you know I've never
1: really had a home. I have uh, been a wanderer since I've been 17 years old. I've covered over one million two hundred thousand miles. My wife's family goes back a long way there and it was the first time that I ever felt this long thread going back through her family and then uh, their third generation Californians and for someone who doesn't really call any place home, or hadn't for a very long time, it was rather shocking to me. It was a novelty. And uh, I love walking uh, along the ocean there. Uh, It is a little bit of a silly place, if we're to be honest about it. But uh, at the end of the day, it's a very lovely place. But for me, I'd rather live in the back
0: streets of Cairo or Istanbul or in Paris. You also went to China in 1984. Yes. This was right after it was opened, am I, am I correct? Right. Yeah, tell us about that experience. My my parents actually went there, too. Oh, so. is that right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, at, at about the same time? About the same time, yeah. Ah,
0: that's, should, they must have found it
1: fascinating.
0: Well, my dad was uh, born in Shanghai oh. before World War II, and he was interred in the camp with uh, J.G. Ballard, uh, oh or just down the street from J.G. Ballard, and then afterwards they had friends who had preserved all their stuff. So he, he went back to find his house in Shanghai where he oh, lived.
1: Oh, that sounds fantastic.
0: Did he? Yeah, actually he did, and he was taking pictures of it. And his grandmother, we'd seen the pictures. My grandmother had these beautiful black and white pictures of his house broad windows and he was taking pictures of it and the police came up and removed his camera from his hands took the film out and said you can't take pictures of this house it's the house of the chief of secret police <laughs> is that right <laughs> <Yeah>. that's delicious <laughs> that's, that was a great story did he
1: try to say but this was my house <laughs> yeah, this <isn't> was <laughs> grandma's house <laughs> that's a wonderful story that is a wonderful story that's one that i would start keeping journal entries on you see <laughs> yeah so that's lovely I,
0: that's a great story Well, tell us about your adventures in China. Well, I went
1: to China simply because I wanted to see China. It Mm -hmm. had just opened up, but I wasn't going to go on a tour. I've Mm -hmm. never gone on a tour in my life. So I had to find a way to get around, because they were basically only accepting tours to some extent there Mm -hmm. at that time. Well, I did find a way in through Hong Kong, moving around in a circuitous fashion. And I began to wander through the center of the country. And... uh, I stayed with some rice farmers who were shocked you know, to see this six-foot-two uh, round eye, as they called me, as I think in Chinese. Um, they had not seen something like that before. They taught me to t- plant rice, which I did very poorly. And then I continued on my way and wandered through the countryside on foot until I came across a group of Chinese soldiers in trucks, which they found this odd. And so for the next few days, I was detained in the center of China. Mm. Um, and they cooked for me in the open air. There was nowhere to take me, so there we stood until the officers took my passports and figured out what to do. But it was a great cultural exchange because I saw in the young soldiers the way they were treating me, what I had seen everywhere, a hunger and a curiosity about I ever have to coincide. But I also thought to myself, as I saw how hard these people worked then, if I had to compete with them ever, that we would be in a great deal of trouble. Because they were using primitive farming tools there, everything, and I thought to myself, my god, they're feeding a billion people. Um, I'm going to be in a little trouble if I ever have to compete with them.
0: I want to ask you about the Royal Geographic Society. Mm -hmm. Um, I just read a book about Percy Fawcett. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in the Royal Geographic Society. How did you become a fellow?
1: My wife and and our work, she was with the Smithsonian, an anthropologist with the Smithsonian. Uh, The reason I had gone to Sierra Leone initially was to document her work for her book with the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, someone uh, suggested us to the Royal Geographical Society in London to be put up uh, as fellows. And I guess they found our work of such a level that they elected us fellows of the Royal Geographical Society in, I guess, 1991, 1989. I can't quite remember the date. But, yes, it's it's rather overpowering to walk into the Royal Geographical or the British Library, the British Museum mm. in London. But the Royal Geographical and there is a big portrait of Sir Richard Francis Burton uh, or... Uh, uh, John Hanna-Speak or uh, uh, Wilfred Thesiger—it uh, It is rather uh, heady stuff for a kid from Chicago.
0: Now, in Madrid, you write that you felt that every place is becoming homogenized with mediocrity. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you ever think, boy, maybe it's time for me to stop traveling.
1: Oh, no. No, no. I, I... I couldn't do that. I just have to go further and further out. I, I have an idea and have had it for a long time that I'd like to walk across Syria and India, spend nine months, and just go on foot in the local clothing and begin to move across India and Syria and retrace Lawrence's steps through the Jordanian desert to Aqaba just to have a real sense of history and a sense of what's going on there, using letters from the past, from the previous century, in contrast with this traveler moving through it in this century. No, I I couldn't stop traveling. Mediocrity only really takes place when tourism has taken over entirely, and people become a caricature of themselves.
0: I've been speaking with Michael Katakas. His new book is Traveler, Observations from an American in Exile. Thank you for joining me, Michael.
1: No, Thank you very much, Rick.
0: Xinran was born in Beijing and moved to London in 1997, where she wrote for The Guardian. She's the author of the book The Good Women of China and Sky Burial. She also created the charity The Mother's Bridge of Love, founded to help disadvantaged Chinese children and to build a bridge of understanding between the West and China. Thank you for joining me, Xinran.
2: Hello. Hi. Thank you.
0: Xinran, your new book is called China Witness, and this is a very interesting take on history. Here in the United States, we get a lot of history, but it's always from the third person. Uh, um, it's kind of like God's point of view, but we don't get the kind of first-person kind of history that you create here in China witness.
2: And um, Actually, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think that only happened in America. I think uh, this is a universal problem. I think we are quite scared. Psychologically, we're not very honest or open-minded to our history, particularly our close history. And I think for China, I, I feel that I want to do the program because Cultural Revolution has burned all of evidence of the history records. So when I realized in the society, in the library, in the Education system in the you know textbooks that there has nothing there, so I was a little bit worried at that time. I didn't realize how important to let people speak out. I just thought of something for myself. You know, I brought up mm-hmm. in the big city and I never had a birthday with my parents. I always. Uh, Um, didn't know how to open the conversation. I want to ask them what happened to them. I'm sure they want to know what happened to me during the Carter Revolution. They both uh, were arrested, you know. But I found that every time when we try to open the conversation, we both side are very scared and uh, psychologically was very painful. It's a very painful process. So I followed a group of the people from the 1980s. That time, most people, they are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I just thought that could be my, you know, history teachers or life advisors. I didn't realize how much I had been learned from them until 2005. My husband discovered, and he said he always talked to the group, the you know, old people every time you went back to China. So I told told him the reason I want to learn what really happened to this country in the last 100 years and to my grandparents' life and to my mom's life. So he said, why don't you, you know, write down a book on their own stories? My first reaction was the same as those interviewees. I said, no, no, no way. They never, ever could. Talk in public or even tell their own children. So he said, Why don't you try? Because there's no understanding between generations, between different people, there's no peace. So afterwards, I thought quite a lot. I think uh, I thought he might be right. So I telephoned back China, I called people, I sent my assistant to meet uh, those people, but actually, 100% of them refused me. I was totally lost when I started the program, but uh, after a year, um, I think uh, I win their heart like I did win their trust during the 20 years, follow them and listen to them, so I spent 10 weeks in 2006. And up and down, cross country, from the west part of China to east part of China, and then we record them, film them, listen to them with a group of the students. So finally, I got eight hundred thousand words back.
0: Now, tell me, um, when when you uh, uh, went to interview these people, how how did you select them? How did you? choose how to do this? Because history's lived at a lot of levels. There are are presidents, but, you know, most people who experience history are people who just go to work every day.
2: Um, Actually, first things I try to avoid is celebrities because I think they have so much chance in their life. They can, you know, have the opportunity to speak out, to tell the stories, or record by other people. So Mm -hmm. I, I avoid this part of the group, from my list, and because before I have to about over fifty people, and the second one um, I have to say is not I choose them; it's mm-hmm. they choose me. Because some of them just pass away before I start the program, and then some simply say no to me. And so finally, I got more than twenty agreed with me, and but. Some of them, you know, obviously so they are both uh, uh, Korea or both a, same age, same Korea, same background. So I try to select some people from a central government level and to the system level, then to the, you know, ordinary people's level and to the different uh, geography or different parts of China and different part of the culture background. So, for example, in the interviewee, I, had, I got um, uh, the first uh, um, personal bodyguard of Mao Zedong. Wow. He also is the founder of China Navy. His oldest uh, survived from 1920s uh, until today during the analyzed uh, you know, political parties killing. Mm -hmm. So he survived. And also I interviewed the military general and uh, tried to understand how the military built up this kind of, uh, like a West Point in America, this Mm -hmm. kind of education system for national defense. Then I interviewed uh, all the policemen who become policemen since 1947. Mm -hmm. So he really gave me the whole picture on how this new government, and took over from all regime and set up a new system with uneducated peasants and the farmers. Mm-hmm. So that's a very shocking, you know, very shocked uh, lesson to me. Mm-hmm. When I asked him, uh, there are so many people have been punished or killed by the death penalty in Henan, which is the largest province in China. So I asked him, how many people have been educated and illegal? to carry out this kind of policy. Then he said before 1980s, so not a single person. You know, wow. I was so shocked. Mm-hmm. I said, how could you? and he said, that is, the system worked. So, and also I interviewed people in the prison, and, uh, which is the largest prison and was set up in 1950. 1950s so when China was exhausted. Was no food and no daily supply to the mm-hmm. ordinary people. So Mao's Communist Party, they gathered, they sent all of the criminals and the war prisoners to the northwest China, which is a huge desert. And those people just, you know, very few of them survived. But they rebuilt modern cities by hands. Completely by hand. And this story, even to the Chinese journalists, didn't open until 2005. Because I heard a story in the 1980s, I never could get it until Mm -hmm. 2006 through my special contacts. So, and also shoemaker and repair in the street. And uh, peasants and lantern makers, and also include a one long march witness as well mm-hmm. because uh, i um I was used to question uh, Is it really happened the long march, and how long they really worked so when I tried to ask him a lot of questions, and his wife was in tears said to his her husband said. Uh, don't go on with the and just show her your feet. Wow. Then she will understand what your words mean. Because the older man was a little bit, you know, annoyed with me. Mm-hmm. I repeated my question again and again from a different direction because I want to figure out what really happened during the long march. But when I saw his feet, mm-hmm. I was totally shut up because he come across the snow mountain and the wet grasses many times. So his feet was totally damaged by infection. He lost all of his 10 toes, So that is not human feet anymore.
0: Now, um, one of the things you had to overcome uh, to, to get these people to talk is a, a, a traditional Chinese um, attitude. Um, which which is the this idea of of the guilt of the family collective guilt. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and, and tell us too, um, uh, what you'll be uh, talking about uh, when you're coming to the United States and on your tour?
2: Yeah, I definitely we'll talk about you know actually the, there's so many Chinese living in America, mm-hmm. and every time I've been there, um, I feel the same things. no matter where they are, if they are Chinese, and they never had a really conversation between generations, and the young people, uh, young Chinese never question their last generations, and they feel it very difficult to challenge anyone above them in the age, and the position, or, you know. This is very much part of the Chinese culture because, you know, we have the Confucian as part of culture roots. Mm-hmm. And before the, how do you say, 1,000 B.C., maybe 1,500 B.C., we, Chinese culture and customs and the philosophy had been rooted. So in that kind the of, um, Chinese rule, Mm-hmm. We have been told by generations and generations is never ever question and challenge anyone above you. I think that this is only one part of the reason. A second reason, which is a very a, a strong influence as well, and is we used to have a very crude legal system, mm-hmm. which is set up by First Emperor Qin Huang, In 220 BC, I think, some the period around there. And in this crude legal system, one person against the law, 3,000 relatives should be killed. So, this crude legal system had been dominated China until 1912. Mm -hmm. So, you can understand that the generations of Chinese if they hadn't been watered by this kind of huge fear, that generations, you know. Mm-hmm. So obviously people don't, not used to talk as part of their culture. And the third point I have to say is based on political reason, because since we end up Love in 1912 or 1911, mm-hmm. the whole China was lost because this nation never had a national religion. We treated our god, uh, no, treated our emperor as our god. Mm-hmm. When we lost our god, we didn't have another one, so we had analyzed the civil war, warlords war, you know, anti-Japanese or between the uh, Communist Party and the National Party. Actually, they fight it just for one thing. Who will be new god the mm-hmm. China? So because of this kind, of, yeah, because this kind, the of political killing, like a French Revolution, you know, in the five years time, the people, the turn to another side, and the killing happened all the time. So Chinese become so silent because everybody is frightened. Say something wrong, you could be punished tomorrow.
0: I've been speaking with Xinran. Her new book is China Witness. She'll be touring the United States next week. Thank you for joining me, Shinran.
2: Thank you.